0: A long, long time ago, Plato had this theory that the world we live in was just a form of reality, not actually reality itself. The real world, he thought, was only known by ideas. It was a a world that was full of ideas. And to explain this simply, I'll try to use an example. A carrot isn't a real carrot on earth. But it is an earthly imitation of what a real, ideal carrot is in the realm of forms in this real world. So as I give you a carrot, you could say, this is a carrot, because you know this idea of what a carrot truly is. And to think, all along, we simple folk thought that a carrot was a carrot because a carrot is a carrot. But that's not a good enough explanation for philosophers, though. This philosophy was used to help define the universals in life that we all know, but we don't necessarily all know how to describe. For example, if I were to ask each one of you this morning to flip your bulletin over to the back and draw me a picture of a unicorn, you know exactly what I'm asking you to do. And depending on our various levels of artistic ability, you would try to draw for me a horse with a horn, because you know what a unicorn is, even though none of us has seen a unicorn and we know they don't exist. But we would say, but Plato would say, but a unicorn exists in this realm of forms, in this real world that has all these ideas. It can be known there. And because we all have this idea of what a unicorn is, it must be real, and it exists in this real world that is different than the world we live in. Are you confused yet? Okay, good, me too. (laughs) Philosophy is not for me. But this is what Plato was teaching in the late 300s B.C., so this is about 350 some years before Christ walks on this earth. Some maybe 400 years before the book of Hebrews is written. Plato taught this philosophy or this idea or concept during his life. The idea that forms in reality, that for that the idea of forms in reality was a contemporary idea during the time the New Testament is being written. The author of the book of Hebrews refers to the Old Testament sacrifices as a type of shadow, pointing forward to a greater reality, to a greater form, saying the shadow was not the form in and of itself, but it pointed to something else. These shadows, the author writes, were powerless to do what they were given to do, but they merely pointed to a greater reality that was to come. And that greater thing was Jesus I invite you to open your Bibles with me as we read Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. And we see how Jesus is more than a mere shadow. Hebrews chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 10. And again, if you're able, I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word. Reading in Jesus' name. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, "'In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin "'you have taken no pleasure. "'Then I said, Behold, I have come, "'in the scroll of the book it is written of me, "'to do your will, O God. "'After saying above, Sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin "'you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, "'which are offered according to the law. "'Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. "'He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Father God, these are your words, and your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth. Lord, open our minds to give us understanding. Open our hearts to believe these words as well. Help us to see Jesus today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Some context for the book of Hebrews is probably helpful here. This book was written during a time when Christians were being persecuted. Judaism was a religion that was protected under state law, and it was perfectly fine and legal for the people to practice, but Christianity, on the other hand, was not. The primary audience of Hebrews were people who were familiar with the Old Testament. They were Christians with a Jewish background. They were Hebrew Christians. As, pers- as the persecution continued to ramp up, And the pressure around them began to intensify and draw closer and closer to them. The thought of going back to Judaism was an attractive thought for many people. If Christianity is just the fulfillment of Judaism, then why can't we worship in a way that is legal? Why can't we go back to all of these things that we were doing before? It's safe. It's legal. It's familiar. It's comfortable. Why can't we just go back? Throughout this book, Christianity is presented as being far better than Judaism because in Jesus, in Christ, we have something far better. We have a better prophet than in Judaism. We have a better priest than the Levitical priests that the Jewish religion continued to cling to. We have a better king, a better king than King David or any other king that the Israelites had. And here in this chapter we'll see that we have a better sacrifice. Yet the draw of reverting back to Judaism and to what was comfortable, and to again what was legal for that matter, what was safe, was certainly a tempting draw for these believers. And the author of this book, throughout the book, encourages his readers to value what we have in Christ, far above anything that Judaism had to offer. The Old Testament is full of, is full of form imagery. Or types, what scripture talks about. Types of things that were to come. As my Old Testament professor in seminary mentioned, referred to it as a preview of the coming attraction. It's a preview of the coming attraction, which was to come and be fulfilled in the New Testament. Many of the festivals, the rites, and the ceremonies in the Old Testament are just a shadow of what is to come. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 2, and the author writes here in Hebrews 10 verse 1, it is just a shadow of what is to come. The substance, however, belongs to Christ. The shadow doesn't stand alone. The shadow doesn't exist by itself. It needs an object. It needs something else. It needs something else for it to exist. Real objects have shadows. Imaginary friends or just ideas don't have Shadows. The author here describes the law, which he defines in the context here as a sacrificial system of the Old Testament. The ones that these readers are familiar with and are wanting to go back to that legal idea again. Wanting to go back to these things. The author describes the law as a shadow of the good things to come. In other words, the law was never meant to be the be-all and end-all. It wasn't given to make us perfect It couldn't make us perfect. In verse 1, it specifically says that. It cannot make us perfect. No matter how many sacrifices were given, no matter how many bulls and goats were sacrificed, they could never make us perfect. They could never take away sins. They would never deal with our sins. And so year after year, on the Day of Atonement, the people continued to bring their sacrifices to the temple. And their animals were slaughtered, and the high priest sprinkled the blood on the mercy seats, making a covering for sin. The end result, though, wasn't the perfection that the people had hoped for. Their consciences weren't cleared from their sins. And every year, they would need to go through the same sacrifice, year after year. The author writes in verse 2 here, "'Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered?' Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. If the blood of these animals and these sacrifices were able to clean consciences, then why keep doing them? Stop. They wouldn't have had to keep on sacrificing these animals because they would remember that one time back in the day when old Bessie was sacrificed, assuming old Bessie here is the name of a bull or a goat, and when old Bessie was slaughtered on their behalf, now they're good to go. But it didn't work that way. The same sacrifices continued to be offered year after year, the author writes in verse 1. Every year, the sacrifices reminded them of their sin. It was an expensive, gruesome, bloody reminder that their relationship with God was marred by their sin. For it is impossible, the author writes in verse 4, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. No matter how sincere they were in their offerings, No matter how hard they tried to live a good, God-honoring life, no matter how many times they vowed to do better and to never do those things that they said they'd never do again, the blood of these animals profited them nothing. It was powerless to do anything. The blood of these animals didn't do anything. And if it profited them nothing... If they had no power, if they couldn't clean your conscience from sin, then why on earth did the people continue to sacrifice these animals year after year? Why did they keep on doing it? What purpose did they serve if they couldn't actually deal with our sins? Verse 1 informs us, again, it's a shadow of the good things to come. But what good was a shadow? The shadow served As a reminder, again, of the good thing it was to come. The thing that was coming was the fulfillment of a promise. No, the blood of these animals wouldn't take away sin. It wouldn't deal with guilty consciences. It wouldn't make anyone perfect, no matter how sincere they were in their offering. But it pointed ahead. It pointed to something else. It pointed to the sacrifice that would do these things. It wasn't the sacrifice of these animals that took care of their sins. They were an expression of faith, however, in the one sacrifice that was to come that actually would deal with sin once and for all. These sacrifices served as a reminder of the penalty of sin. And every year there was that gruesome reminder that the wages of sin is indeed death. No matter how much people would try to cover up the reality of sin by calling it something else, by calling it a mistake or an error, or maybe I forgot to do the thing that I was supposed to do, or maybe even simply saying, well, I goofed up, or I messed up. The reality remains that sin is a horrible, dreadful thing, something that is not to be taken lightly or dealt with lightly, but to be taken seriously, something that required the shedding of blood to fix, something that required the shedding of blood to cover, something that required the shedding of blood to pay for, that offense it was a good and necessary reminder for their sins, but the law also served as a reminder of God's provision. As these sacrifices were yearly brought to the altar, they remembered the promise that there would be one who would be offered on behalf as, their, as a guilt offering, one who would be led to the slaughter on our behalf, one who Isaiah declares would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, one who would bear the sin of many and intercede for the transgressors. The sacrifice that was given each year was a continual reminder of this truth, a reminder that, yes, I am a poor, miserable sinner who has sinned against God, for which I deserve death, for which I deserve eternal punishment. But God, but God has provided a way out. God has provided a way of escape. God has promised to provide a sacrifice just as he provided a sacrifice for Abraham. And as each sacrifice was given in faith, trusting in that promise, trusting in the good thing that was to come, that sacrifice given for our sins, the shadow revealed to the people of, that God was going to deal with our sin. Ultimately, it wasn't the blood of these animals that could take away their sin. But the sin would be dealt with, was dealt with, has been dealt with. As they clung to the good thing to which these things pointed. As they clung to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because of the impossibility of bulls and goats to deal with the sin, the author reminds his readers that this again is why Christ came into the world. In verses five through nine he explains it this way, quoting Psalm forty. He says, Therefore, when he comes into the world, referring to Christ, he says, Sacrifice an offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, a body you have prepared for Christ, in whom in who in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, in the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. After saying above sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law, then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. The action of sacrificing by itself never pleased God. Only when these sacrifices were united by faith in the one who was to come and to do God's will were these sacrifices and offerings pleasing in his sight. Hebrews 11, the next chapter, talks about that when referring to Cain and Abel and their sacrifices. The sacrifice offered apart from faith profits you nothing. The author points back to the promise given in Psalm chapter 40. And recognizes that God never intended for these sacrifices that continued to be done in the Old Testament. That the sacrifices of these bulls and goats were never intended to make you perfect. They were never intended for them to take away sins. But he intended for them to point forward to a greater sacrifice. The sacrifice of his beloved son. The one for whom he, for whom God has prepared a body for From the foundation of the world, this has always been God's plan of redemption. This has always been the once and for all sacrifice which God had set aside by which we must be saved. His own Son, who for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven, begotten of the Father, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, taking on flesh to accomplish God's will. God the Father had prepared this body for His Son. To do his will. What was that will that God desired? Was that good thing mentioned in verse 1? To make perfect those who draw near, to take away sins once for all, that we might be sanctified and made holy. This is the will of God. And this is the reason why the body had been prepared for Christ. This is the whole reason and purpose for the incarnation. This is the greater truth that Judaism pointed forward to. This is the fulfillment of all the sacrifices. The shadows pointed forward to Christ who was their fulfillment. And pointed to the sacrifice of the Son of God once and for all, for all time. And as these believers are on the verge of turning their backs on Christianity, on going back to this religion which was deemed okay by the state, I'm going back to the old forms and shadows of Judaism. They're in danger of losing everything. In danger of losing their Savior. In danger of losing their salvation. The good things to come in verse 1 are explained in verse 10. Notice what the author writes here. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There's tremendous comfort here in this verse. What does the scripture say? We have been sanctified. Past tense. It's finished, it's done, it's completed. As the hymn writer writes, my sin, O oh, the bliss of the glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. Having been sacrificed, that sin has been dealt with and taken care of. What a glorious and comforting truth that we have been sanctified. And it gets better. Notice here by whose will we are sanctified. By this will, the text says. And what will is being referred to here? Is it your will? Is it my will? Is it my desire to be sanctified that sanctifies me? Is it my own efforts? No. It is God's will. By this will, by God's will, this is again the will of God from before the foundation of the earth that the beloved body of his beloved son would be pierced for our salvation. Sacrifice that we would be made holy, made perfect, in a right relationship once again with our creator for all time. That's what we pray for when we pray Thy will be done. Jesus came to do God's will and has done God's will, offering his body for you on the cross, having offered one sacrifice for sins. Our debt is paid. Our relationship is restored. And this is the will of God. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. It's been taken care of once and for all, for all time, the text says. So what does this mean? And why does this matter? And how does this affect us here today in 2020? There will be days, dear friends, when you don't feel very forgiven. There will be days when you feel as though you must make, when you feel as though there must be some sacrifice that you can give to the Lord to make up for the bad behavior that you've done in the past. And you come up with all kinds of ideas to make restitution for those errors you've done, for the sins you've done. There will be days when you don't feel very holy. Days when you don't seem to be very sanctified. And there will be days even when you don't want to be holy. Days when you want to indulge in the sinful desires of your flesh. And then you do. What happens to you then? Only to leave you feeling guilty and ashamed, unlovable, unholy, wretched, and dirty. And there in your brokenness, you're reminded once again of what Christ has done for you and God's will for you. That Christ came to do God's will for you. That he offered his body once for all, so that there no longer needs to be a sacrifice for you to make to be restored. So that by God's will, you, yes, you would be sanctified. So that by God's will, through Christ and through his work, you would be holy and blameless, without blemish, pure and undefiled. That you, wretched sinner, would be forgiven and made perfect by the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. You see, this sanctification never depended on us or on the sacrifices that we make, but on Jesus, who accomplished the will of God for us. The law and all of its sacrifices pointed ahead to Jesus. And these Hebrew believers are on the verge of saying, you know what, Jesus, thank you, but this isn't enough. I want to go back to these sacrifices. I want to go back to the shadows of things. It was better then, when in reality, Christ had been sacrificed for them. When in reality, Christ had paid for all of their sins. And Christ is the one who sanctified them. And we do this ourselves whenever we try to offer some sacrifice by which we know in our own hearts and in our own minds that God is really going to be pleased with me now that I have done this work for him. Or God will be satisfied since I've done this to make up for the sin that I've done. The problem with that thinking is it says, Jesus, your sacrifice isn't enough. But this text says, by this will, by God's will, not our will, by God's will, we have been sanctified. It is done through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There no longer remains a sacrifice for you to make for your sins. There is no longer anything else that we have to do in order to be made holy. God has done that for us in Christ Jesus. And this holiness is ours as we believe and trust in Christ, who alone can make us perfect. And Jesus is the one to whom the shadows of the law point. He is the good thing who was to come and who came and who is to come again. Jesus, and in Jesus, we see God's will for us our superior sacrifice. He's our only sacrifice. And by his actions, by his obedience, and by his sacrifice, by God's will, you too have been sanctified. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for your word and for its truth. We thank you, God, that your word reveals to us that all of the things that we come up with in our own hearts and our own minds to satisfy you to try to please you, to try to make up for our sins, Lord, they mean nothing. But God, according to your will and your purpose, you have prepared a body for our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Jesus, you have done the Father's will that was set down before the foundation of the world so that we might be sanctified and made holy. Lord, this sacrifice was once and for all. We pray, Lord, that you would... Give us this message on our hearts and in our minds and on our lips that we might tell this wonderful truth to those around us, that this sacrifice is once for all, it's for us, but it's for others too, for our neighbors too. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us and inspire us out of an overwhelming knowledge and thankfulness and gratefulness for what you have done to share this message with those around us. We do thank you and praise you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior.